Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 13. And uh, last week, if you were here, we talked about why do people suffer in silence? And we gave a variety of reasons, and there was a failed PowerPoint thing in the midst of all of that. But the big thing that we looked at last week, as we looked at Job, is that people often suffer in silence because they're afraid of being judged. And if you remember from last week, Job poured out his heart and he said, Man, I just, I wish I wasn't born. This pain is too great. I have lost everything. I've lost my possessions. I've lost my children. I've lost my health. And I just wish that I wasn't born. And his three friends, which we're going to look at today in a different way, went off on him. And uh, they basically spent a whole bunch of time judging him and explaining to him the reality is that, Job, somehow you've sinned. Because God does not bring this upon the righteous, it's only the unrighteous. And what you need to do, Job, is to repent. Okay, You are suffering for a reason. God wants to bring you to a place where you would repent, and if you repent, he'll restore you. And so a lot of people suffer in silence because they feel like they're judged because Job was racking his brains and asking God, what have I done wrong? I don't, I don't see this. And we see something that those four did not see, and that's something that was going on behind the scenes, and that Job's suffering was really because he was righteous, because God was bragging on him. And Satan said, listen, let's take all this stuff away, and we'll see how long he worships. And we got to a place, I hope, where we saw that you can still worship God and pour out your heart, asking questions, wondering why. And I hope we also got to a place where we were able to see that as a church, there's a type of community that we want to be involved in. And the type of community that we want to be involved in is a type of community where we can say, I have problems. I have struggles. I have difficulties. There are things that are wrong with me. I do struggle with depression. I do have a difficult marriage. It's really hard raising my children. All kinds of stuff. And that we want to get to a place as a community where we actually have that freedom to do so without being judged. Now, we looked at that last week, and I hope everyone was able to take that home and uh, work through that and hopefully get to a place where you can meet people who are safe people that you can trust here at this church so that we do become a community in heart and mind. I want to look at the flip side, though, today as we look at Job's three friends, because we're going a little bit backwards, which I don't know if is normal, but we're going to go backwards, and we're going to look at what they sort of did right, even though they really didn't, and try to get to a place where we can be the type of people who are actually doing what Jesus desires. So let's read the verses. (coughs) And they read this way. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him 
and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, last week we talked about a few reasons as to why people suffer in silence. But I want to raise a different question this week is why do we have a hard time comforting people who suffer? And I came up with a few things. Uh, One of them is we're too busy. How many of you are busy? I mean, you don't have to raise your hands. I mean, because if you know you're not busy, everyone's going to judge you. So I don't want to get that started off on the wrong thing, right? We're all busy. We have a lot of things that we need to get done. Now, in our neighborhood, we've been living there for almost 21 years. It'll be 21 years in May. And uh, so we know a good number of the people, obviously, at least hopefully, right? And uh, there was an older gentleman in our neighborhood. He walks around the neighborhood all the time. He lost his wife about five or six years ago, and he just walks around. And I noticed that he had stopped walking around right around the beginning of December. And I said, you know, that's really strange because every day I saw him out there and he'd pick up our paper because you know how the paper guys do it. Like when I was growing up as a paper boy, we would throw the paper on the porch, right? That was the nice, kind, respectful. Now these guys are driving in the car and they're just flipping down the driveway. Who wants to walk out in the snow and the rain and all that stuff? But I digress. So he used to throw the paper for us closer to the door. But I noticed he wasn't walking around and I said, there's got to be something wrong. Okay, I, I'm a, I have some brains, and I, there's got to be something wrong. But because I'm so busy, every day I'm driving by his house, and I'm thinking, oh, I should drop by. I, I should do it today, and I don't. It took me probably four weeks to finally walk over and find out that he was dying of cancer. We're too busy. And, and I, I dropped by about a week and a half ago, and he passed away last Friday. So imagine, in the midst of all of my bus- busyness, what I would have missed if I hadn't have said, this is it, I have to go. It was like God said, really, Frank, wake up. I know you're busy, but get over there. And to get over there and learn from his daughter that all or many of the other neighbors in the neighborhood had already been there. A lot of us don't minister because we're too busy, which is a call for what? Priorities, to be less busy. Another reason why is because we don't know what to say or we feel inadequate. We, just, we, get, we get around someone who is suffering, someone who is struggling, and, and it's really hard to sit down because sometimes we cannot empathize with what's going on. There are some things that are beyond us that we just don't understand. And so that we feel like if we go there, I, just, I really honestly don't know what to say. What do I say to you? Myself personally, what do I say to a mom who just had a miscarriage? Can I say, oh, I know how you feel. No, I don't. I don't know what to say. That's uncomfortable. And so I feel inadequate. And so the easier thing to do is rather than feeling uncomfortable, inadequate, maybe I should just sit and do anything and hope somebody else comes along and takes care of that. Another reason why we don't minister to people is because we're overwhelmed by our own suffering. Have you ever known a friend who experienced a tragedy while you're in the midst of your own tragedy? It's really hard to get up and say, hey, listen, I want to minister to you. I want to share Christ to you. But it's really hard because I'm going through stuff. I can think of the pastor that I uh, first came up to on the north side and for for years him struggling with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. 
and the difficulty sometimes that I found for me to go over there, not because I didn't want to be with him, because something was going on in my life, and it was hard to just get up the energy to say, man, I am down, I am struggling, I am hurting, and now to go and try and help someone else just isn't happening. But I think another reason that we don't is because we find people who are struggling a lot to be wearisome. Isn't that kind of true? You're hanging around somebody, and you come up to them, and uh, first thing out of their mouth is the same thing. I'm struggling with this. I'm working through this. It's a really hard time with this. And sometimes we just want to say, stop. It's too much. It's really hard for me to bear hearing this all the time. Is there no progress? Aren't you getting, why can't you get over it? Or get through it? Or something? And so we, we're afraid of getting caught up in ministering to somebody and getting to a place where all we hear is their problems and their difficulties. They've become that needy person that we want to avoid because it's too much for us. And some of us go far as to say, wow, this relationship is toxic. I'm done. And so a lot of us get to that place. We don't minister to people who suffer in silence because of all of these things that ultimately we don't realize that there is a cost in following them. And when we realize the cost, we go, that's too much for us. So I want to look at Job's friends, and I want to try to deal with that a little bit. And here's only the only thing I want to say today is this. Jesus desires that we do whatever it takes to be there for him. So I'm going to use three guys who were bad examples and get us to a place where hopefully we see that Jesus desires that we do whatever it takes to be there for him. Let's read the verses again. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, heard about the troubles that had come upon Job, they set out from their homes and met together in agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort with him. Now, everyone that I read, every commentator, was saying that these guys came from a great distance. So it wasn't like they were a neighbor like I was, and I could just walk three houses down and say, hey, how are things going? But these guys came from great distances. So you have these guys who are going to do whatever it takes. What they're saying is, listen... We heard about Job. We could say, hey, you know what? You know, I'm a little too far away. Uh, just, you know, I got a lot of things going on. We have a, I have a family, my own things that I have to do, my own business, all of these things, my own community. I just don't have the time to get over there. But these guys say, listen, <coughs> we're his friends. Let's get together. Let's do whatever it takes in order to get to that place where we can minister and bring comfort to Job. What they're doing is they're saying is we're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to inconvenience ourselves. We're going to go out of our way, and we're just going to be there for Job. And, and that's really what their motive is, because it says what this. They went to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. They're going to be there with him. Now, I, I learned that lesson from my mom in some ways. Uh, when my dad was going through uh, his Alzheimer's, uh, leading to his eventual death about nine years ago, for two years, that woman stuck with him. And, and, and I'm going to say something, and I'm not, this is not a broad stroke. It's just what my mom did, which was she refused to put him in a nursing home or hospice care. She said, 60 years ago, I said to this man, I will be with him through sickness and in health, and I'm going to be with him. For two years, she stayed with him. And, trust, and if you've experienced this and you see how the decline of a parent or someone with Alzheimer's, it's really hard to watch. 
very difficult. But she stuck with him through thick and thin, so much so that my siblings got a hold of that. And when my mom had her issues with Alzheimer's and ultimately passed away, the seven of us were there for her as well. About eight years ago, when I was in Tuba City on a trip, my wife mentioned to me a longtime friend of ours who, if I remember correctly, was a runner, had experienced something where she woke up one day and she couldn't walk anymore. And that was, and to this day, she still cannot walk. But I remember when she was going back to work, because when you can't use your legs, you can't drive, I remember every Monday morning getting up early to move, to go from Mount Prospect to drive to Skokie to drive all the way up to Abbott, which is what, Lincolnshire or whatever, and to drive back home. Now, Monday's my day off. And if you know me, I love to sleep. I love to sleep. But one thing I'd learned from watching is that when someone is suffering, you do whatever it takes. Rain, snow, sunshine, horrible traffic, and I hate driving, I promise you. Being there week in and week out because what we had decided as a family, my wife and I, is that we will do whatever it takes in order for her to get to where she needs to be. And that's what Job's friends here initially are saying. We will do whatever it takes. We will do whatever it takes. If you read Philippians chapter 2, in verse 30, it says that Paul is concerned about this man named Epaphroditus. Why? Because Epaphroditus has given everything he can from Philippi in order to minister to Paul. And in the midst of this, he almost died. You see, Epaphroditus is thinking, is, listen, if someone's suffering, and Paul is because he's in prison, I'm not just going to say, hey, you know what, the ship's, you know, the weather's not really good. I'm not really sure I'm going to go. It's a long journey. It's going to be hard. It's difficult. i got to leave my family or whatever. He just said, I will do whatever it takes in order to minister comfort to Paul in the midst of his suffering. I can imagine he probably saw it in Paul, but ultimately it comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? Because what does Jesus do in Philippians chapter 2? He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He did whatever it takes in order to minister to those of us who were stuck in our suffering and our sin. And he said, you know what? There's no holds barred. I will do whatever it takes. So, Father, if it means that I have to die on the cross, then I will die on the cross. And that's what these guys are saying here. They are saying, we will be with you, Job. We will do whatever it takes in order to comfort you. And when we bring it to ourselves, what we're saying is we're not here just to comfort you. We are here to comfort you for Christ. Because that was Jesus' motive in some ways. Ultimate motive is the glory of God. But his motive was, I will do whatever it takes in order to reach people, bring comfort, bring peace, bring rest in order that they might know my Father. So we learn from Job's friends this idea here that we must do whatever it takes in order to be there for him because these friends are doing just that in the beginning. Now, mind you, we're going to see, or we saw last week that they failed miserably, but that is the idea of being there for whatever it takes. But notice what else happens. Verse 13. Let's go with verse 12. I'm sorry. When they saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. 
Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They did whatever it takes. They were there for Job. You know, it's they saw him in the distance. And, and you know, you can see sometimes how people really are ill. So when I went to my neighbor's house, knowing that something was wrong, when I saw him, you could see he'd lost like about 25 pounds. The cancer had taken over so much so. And, and you could see that. And so Job's friends can see from a distance, this guy is a chocolate mess. He is in a bad spot. And what do they do? They start weeping because they're grieved. Their hearts are broken at the suffering that Job is experiencing. And then they, they, they tear their clothes and they go, this is a, a sign of, of agony. We are suffering. We're entering into your pain. We're going to walk alongside of you, Job. And as they walk alongside of him, they sit down with him, and they sit in silence for seven days. Now, how many of you can sit in silence for very long? It's hard, isn't it? Could you imagine sitting for seven days, just sitting there in a circle? Five guys just sitting there for seven days. And how many of you, like, after five seconds, are like, okay, that's good enough. Last night, we went to a youth group praise night, and we were there for about an hour afterwards, just sitting. It was hard, man. They just, let's pray for an hour. And you're just sitting there. And it's, I can't imagine sitting there for seven days in the midst of someone's grief and pain. But that's what they did because they knew that whatever it takes. Because in a sense, they're there and they're saying, listen, Job, you are dead. All of this here is a symbol or a sign of of experiencing like a funeral. Seven days of grief and and silence, and they're there and they're with him. And what they're saying is, listen, we are here. We are going to enter into your place. We are going to enter into your presence. We're going to be there with you in the midst of your struggle and in the midst of your suffering. We can't suffer with you, but we will be there with you. And that's what they're saying. And that's the call for us. This is, this is probably one of the best things they did until they opened their mouths. And then it all went downhill. All went downhill when they started saying, Job, you have sinned. Job, no, you really have sinned. Job, here's the sins you've done. Absolute silence. When you comfort somebody, isn't it hard to be silent? If you're like me, one of the struggles I have is you want to go in there into that situation and you want to say some of the most memorable words that can ever be mentioned in the midst of sorrow. So that the other person hears your words and absorbs them and goes, wow, God is good. God is real. You have brought words of comfort to me. It's hard to be silent. But I've been reading this book that says, don't sing songs to every heart. And what he says is come in silence. Why? Because here's some of the things that we say that are really interesting which I'm encouraging you not to say. I know how you feel. I know how you feel. I know you just miscarried, but I know how you feel. Man, I know you lost your parents. I know how you feel. Even if I've lost my parents, you don't know how the other person feels. There's a lot that's going on there. I had a good relationship with my parents. How do I know they had a good relationship with their parents? How do I know that they're not sitting there wallowing in guilt and shame thinking, I never enjoyed my parents? And I'm saying, oh, I know how you feel. No, you don't. Because I feel guilt and shame about how I treated them. And now that I've seen there's nothing else to say, I don't feel good. So 
I don't know how you feel. And I can't say that. Some of the other things we try to do is we tell them a victory story. You know what the victory story is? Like, man, I knew someone who was in the midst of that, and this is what they did. And, man, it turned out wonderful. Like Lou Gehrig. The story goes that he got up before Yankee Stadium and tells everybody, you know, I'm so blessed. Everything is so great. I'm going to keep on fighting and everything is wonderful. And then we bring that to someone who's struggling with some sort of illness and we go, look at Lou Gehrig, man. Look what he did. You can do it too. Now, of course, what we're trying to do is be encouraging, but the words don't come across like that because in the midst of that, what we're really saying is, here was someone who's strong and you pitiful creature are still in the midst of your weakness. Can't you be like Lou? Can't you just get over it? Can't you get through it? Let me tell you my depression story. Man, my depression story, I struggled with depression. I thought of taking my life. I was going to get over it. But man, then God came. You can too, if you adjust. Hey, uh, your marriage is having real difficulties right now. Man, I know how you feel, but let me tell you, we went to this conference, man, and it changed our lives. Maybe they went to the conference too and it didn't. See, here's the thing that the Job's counselors are doing is they're remaining silent because you just don't always know what to say until you enter into a person's place, until you enter into his his or her presence like these friends had done. And had they stayed in that place, had they stayed in his presence, you would have a different story. But they didn't. I don't know what they were doing over those seven days. I don't know. I think their original intent was to bring comfort. Maybe they thought to themselves, we will bring comfort, we will sympathize, we will bring comfort to Job because we're going to go and tell him, dude, we have the way. The way for you to find God again is to repent and turn from your sin. They may have thought that that was comfort. But what I think Job's comforters are teaching us is be silent until you really learn, until you really know, until you've really entered into that person's place, until you've entered into their presence. Because our words that we think are wonderful, the words that will help them out, aren't always the words that will help them out. The book was mentioning, sometimes we even tell people when someone dies, one of the things that we think is comforting is, God just needed another angel. That's hard stuff to hear, man. Because when you've experienced loss, that's not what you want to hear. Everybody's different. I remember years ago I read a book about uh, the Normandy invasion and how in this one village, uh, one small little town, all these men had run up and they'd they'd been wiped out. And and the the father of one of the... uh, the man who had been killed just could not get over it, that he'd lost his son. And for the rest of his life was an empty shell of a man. And I remember reading that story, and I said, man, I would never be like that. I have God. If I have God, how can you be like that? And uh, I, I think something changed in me when we had the fifth one. Trust me, I love the first four just as much as I love the fifth one. So don't be, like, going home and, like, Dan, if you're here somewhere, thinking that you're not as loved as everybody else, but... Something about her changed the way I view that man. Because it made me realize, I mean, I would have, if I had gone and ministered to him, I would have said, trust in God. You will yet hope again. You know, they're in a better place. That's not what he wanted to hear. I don't think I could, I could handle that. I think, and, and I think for me, 
in loss. I just want people to say, I'm here. And again, we're all different. I understand that. And I would imagine that's probably what Job wanted to know. He wanted to have a place that was safe, a place where he could be himself because he's pouring out his heart. I mean, you don't normally go up to people in small group and say, hey, guys, I had a bad week. I wish I was dead. What do you think would happen in small group if we said that? People would freak out. Someone might even call 911. And rightly so in some ways. But what I want us to see here is through their mistake, they were silent. Why can't we just be silent and be there? We looked at the reasons. I I understand that. I get that. I'm not saying those are bad reasons in a sense. I understand we're busy. I understand it's uncomfortable. I understand we don't know what to say. I understand sometimes we are self-centered. I understand sometimes we're dealing with our own stuff. But Jesus desires that we do whatever it takes to be there for someone in suffering for him. Which brings me to this, because as you're listening to this last week, the reality is many times we do judge those who are struggling in their sin, who are struggling in their suffering. And we think now, okay, I get that. I'm supposed to be there. But how do you minister truth to someone? Because we all know that in reality, there are some people who are hurting people because they're hurting people. And we have to get to a place where we do speak words, but we speak those words over time as we get to know a person and we can get to a place where we can actually speak into their lives. How many of you have ever been confronted by someone you don't know? How pleasurable of an experience. They come up to you and they tell you, hey man, I didn't like what you said. I didn't like what you did. And you wonder to yourself, hold on a second. That's not what's going on here. I remember one time when I was preaching and I said, when a woman gives herself to a man, there was woman, a woman in the crowd who said, wow, that is so demeaning. It's not what I meant. Marriage is a mutual giving of each other, just so that's clear. But she thought I was saying the guy is superior and the woman is inferior and she has to give herself to him. Now, that's my fault for not being sensitive. Totally understandable. But I also think blame rests for her for not understanding who I am and asking, what did you mean by that? She left the church because she believed that I believed that men are better than women. It's not true. There has to be a place, though, where those who are hurting people, because they're hurting people, where we can speak the truth. I think of Jesus when he dealt with the Samaritan woman, right? He told her about what real worship is. He didn't say, hey, go live your life as it is. He said, lady, you have some issues. Five men, six men, come on. I see your heart. Get to a better place of worship. What he's saying is turn from this and turn to me. When the woman was caught in adultery and he wrote on the ground, he gave compassion, he gave mercy, he gave grace. But then he stood up and said, go and sin no more. You see, because even though you are hurting, and I'm speaking to those who are hurting and feel like, hey, I've been judged, sometimes if we're going to do whatever it takes to be there for him, we have to still speak truth. You can't go to the person who's saying, hey, you know what, listen, I'm cheating on my spouse, I've been cheating on them for two years, but you don't understand my spouse. Man, he or she is just like crazy. I get that. They might be. But it doesn't give us the freedom to do what is wrong because we are still to be in Christ. It's what 
we are called to do when we sit down with someone and speak truth. And when we speak truth, we speak truth because we speak it in love, not because we want to be right. That's a real fine line, because we want to be there for Christ. And when Jesus looks at people and he sees them stuck in their suffering and he sees them stuck in their sin, what he says is, I am there. But I am there as me. I will love, I will comfort, I will be there, I will do whatever it takes in order to help you. But there are times when some things that we do need to be confronted, need to be approached in a sense or with a sense or a heart that says, I will do whatever it takes because I love you. Think of it this way. My daughter Christine is not into drugs as far as I know. That sounds bad, doesn't it? (laughs) But you can tell, you know what I mean? She's not. But if she was, and then she comes home, and she starts stealing money from the family, and starts affecting relationships, do you think I, as a good parent, would say, Honey, I love you. You have a drug problem. Here's some more money. What would you think of me as a parent? I'm sorry? Enabling. Okay, I thought you said a neighbor. I was like, oh man. Well, yeah, I guess that's a good neighbor like State Farm, but that's not really what I was looking for as an answer. You know, here, have some more. Oh, wait a minute. You're having, oh, come on. And just keep giving and, and giving. Yes, as a parent, we want to be there. I will be there. I mean, even if you told her, I know this is crazy. Maybe I'm a bad parent in the end, but I've even told, listen, honey, if you ever get pregnant, never, ever, 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 ever get an abortion. Your mom... And I will take care of that kid if we have to. But don't do it. You know what I'm saying? You get it? That's the parent that says, listen, honey, I love you. I will be with you. I will do whatever it takes. I will inconvenience myself. I will go out of my way like Job's counselors to make sure that we bring comfort. And like Job's counselors, if they would have thought and been a little bit more wise... You can speak truth, but if you don't know what's going on, that's not right. They did not know God and his heart. They did not know what was going on behind the scenes. And that's why the call is when you minister to people is to be silent and to listen and not to start accusing. Because I can imagine Job sitting there going, I've done nothing wrong. And you, you, Aliphaz, you told me I helped and minister to people. And now at the end of all of this, you're telling me that I'm robbing widows and I'm stealing money from people. How? How did you get to that place? Because you stopped being there for them in Christ and you started being there for yourself to be a good citizen. Because the call, I think, ultimately of Scripture is that Jesus is saying, listen, be there for me. Be me in that place. Be me in that place. And that's the kind of community that I want to be a part of. I want to know that when that day comes and I have to struggle with loss and suffering or I'm struggling with some issue, that I can actually say I have a place to go where I know that people will walk with me through this. And when I begin to get a little off the rails, they'll tell me. I'll be honest with you. One of the things that I am most grateful in life is Process Group. Because through Process Group, I have learned that both Dave and Jared will be there. That's the kind of community that I want to be in. It's a safe place. It's the safe place I feel with my wife. The place where I can say, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling. I'm hurting. Don't you want to be a part of that? 
Don't you want to be a... And again, I'm not saying, hey, listen, if we had someone in our church who said, I am a registered sex offender, we're all going to freak out, right? Why can't we say, okay, we get that. How can we help you get beyond that? It's not throwing them in the seeds class and saying, let's help you. Not smart. That's speaking truth, though, isn't it? But they spoke their heart. But instead of going, everyone creeped out, why not say, we are here for you. Let us help you move on. That's the kind of community. My marriage is struggling. What's your marriage? How can your marriage be struggling? We're all happy. Come on, man. We get together on Sundays. Everyone's smiling. Everyone's saying, my marriage is struggling. Man, that's too much for me. I can't deal with that. Why can't we enter into that and walk with people? Isn't that the kind of, want to, kind of community that you want to be a part of? Where no matter what it is that you're struggling with, you can say, I am stuck. I'm depressed. I can't get out of this, man. I have no hope. I feel like the easiest way is since I can't take my life, God, just take me. Can you imagine sharing that? Wouldn't it be awesome to be able to share that and have people say, you know what, we're here for you. We will do whatever it takes. We will travel from large distances. We will put up with the hurting that you might do to us. We will be there for you because we want to be there for you in Christ, for him. And that's what I think Job's counselors are teaching us here in the beginning, that when we don't see what the end is, we're thinking these are great people. These are the kind of people that you want to be in your community. It's the kind of community that we want to develop. It's the kind of place that a church should be. If someone comes and says, hey, you know what? I've been sexually abused. Would we not freak out? Why can't we say, I see that. It's painful. It's difficult. We will be there with you. It reminds me last week how we finished the service. Sometimes when we look at someone caught in the sex trade or we look at a prostitute and we go, wow, look at that dirty person. Shameful, sinful, scarlet A kind of person. Wow, how? You have no idea how they got there. A large percentage of those women got there because they were alone. And someone came along and used and abused and crushed them. The ways that they crush these women who end up in prostitution. And then they snag them. And once they snag them, you know, they're all smiley. All those prostitutes are happy. They're smiley. They must love it. No, they don't. They're like that because they have to be like that. And if they're not, they get beaten. So we can't sit there and say, hey, you're like that. So that, you know, I'm just going to make my own judgment. And you're like that because you're this person. Jesus desires that we do whatever it takes to be there for him, to enter into their place, to enter into their pain like his three friends here did, entering into his mourning and weeping and sitting in the garbage dump together and saying, Job, we are here for you. And that won't change. Now again, I realize they blew it. But we know what they did wrong and we know what we should do right. So let me finish with this. I want to give a couple challenges. Because I want to live in this community. I mean, I love this community. But I want to live in the type of community where people who are hurting can actually say, I'm messed up. And I want to be in a type of community where messed up people can say that and know that they have people around them who will do whatever it takes to minister Christ to them. Here's my challenges. Number one, to those of you who suffer, be vulnerable. Be vulnerable to someone who will walk with you. I'm not inviting you to come on up here and say, hey, I want to share with you, here's my testimony. 
But first find those people whom you can be vulnerable with and who you can walk with. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but then secondly, expect to be judged. Because if you're judged, that's okay. I mean, it's not right. It's expected. But it's not going to stop you. Or it shouldn't stop you from saying, I still need help. That's a big hang-up for people. Well, if you're going to judge me, I don't want anything to do it, so I might as well just live in my pain and suffering. Why? Why? Let them judge you. But if you can find those people who will walk with you, it is better to find hope and light and comfort and strength in people rather than saying, forget it, I'll live in darkness. Expect people to make mistakes. I'll be honest with you, even when I comfort people, I say some things that are really, really dumb. You heard me last week. I mean, I sometimes even tell my kids, you know, if I tell them to do something and they don't do it, you know, like a parent, what are your first words? I told you so. Come on, that feels good, doesn't it? Be honest. When I say it, it feels really good. (laughs) It's really wrong, right? Expect that we're going to make mistakes. You know, if someone walks alongside you and they say, I'll be there, whatever it takes, sometimes we say things that just don't click and aren't right. Please be merciful to us. And then finally, when someone speaks the truth to you, when they're really speaking God's heart and it's a call for change, listen. Know that we love you, that we are not trying to judge you. We are not trying to beat you down. We are trying to see you live life as God intended. Here's my challenge for those of us who are comfort, though. It's be with the person through thick and thin. If someone is struggling and hurting, don't just run at the first chance you get. Be there. Even if you have to be there in silence. Just be there. Because sometimes we don't really know what's going on. But just be there. Number two, don't feel obligated to have the answers. You know, a lot of times we want to have the answers, like we mentioned earlier, but you don't have to have the answers. You just have to be there. A lot of us really want to know that someone is there in my corner, and when the time comes, we'll say, okay, this is where I'm at. Thanks for being there. That's okay. Because it takes a lot of time to process a lot of pain sometimes. And not everybody gets through their pain the same way. Some people get through it faster. Some people get through it slower. Some people have a difficult time. Some people don't have any difficult time whatsoever. But just simply being there and you being there, not feeling like you are obligated to give them answers. And then finally, when you do speak, be wise. Because you're not there for yourself. We're not trying to develop a community of good citizens. We're trying to develop a community of people who will follow Christ so that in the midst of a person's sin and suffering, we are there for him. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his heart. That's why we comfort people, because we follow Jesus, and we want to be like Jesus to people who are around us, to get alongside of them and say, I get it. You're hurting. I don't get how you're hurting. Or how the hurting is expected, but I get it, and I want to be there for you. I I know that sounds kind of like a a non-muscle type Christianity to some of us, but I think that's some of the most muscular things to do to actually be there with people in the midst of their pain and suffering. Because it's not an easy road for them. And they are looking for someone who cares. And we can be that. We can be that. We can be the ones who say, I will be here for you. I will do whatever it takes for him, for you, for you to be in him. 
Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.